0: Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 31. Hear God's words. Hear God's words to us this morning. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Continue on, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel It sends the reading of God's holy, infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Uh, you ever been so badly shaken, like gone through something that so scared you that you shook? I remember being, when we were moving from seminary to Mississippi Coming out of school and my wife was seven months pregnant and we were driving with our possessions. And we're driving up I-55. We're only about an hour away from our destination. And all of a sudden I, I looked down to, I think to grab a map, which would be so odd. That makes me feel so old. But to grab a map, or maybe it was a MapQuest directions. Remember you used to, have to print up your map, MapQuest directions. And I looked back up and there was on the, on the highway stopped right in front of me, a car. I have no idea why. Yeah, yes, I got a seven-month pre- pregnant wife, and it's one of those, your life flashes before your eyes. I slam on my brakes, and we swerve off the road down into a ravine. And I remember sitting there in the, in the car, holding onto the steering wheel, panting. And it took until the next morning when I woke up for my stomach to stop being in knots. I was shook to the core. My parents, my parents used to have chihuahuas. You ever seen a chihuahua? They shake all the time. Because when, they had a a two and a half pound chihuahua. Because when you're two and a half pounds and your teeth are the size of a splinter, Everything scares you, and you're always cold. What we have today in Acts chapter 4 is why we begin and end the passage with boldness. We begin with Peter and John proclaiming the gospel before, before the Sanhedrin with boldness, and we have the people of God going out with boldness. In the middle, what we have is they're scared to death. They're scared to death. You see, in verse 29, they they pray a prayer, and the the main petition of that prayer is this. Give us boldness. Now, why do you ask for boldness when you don't have it? When you're scurred? That's when you ask for boldness. You don't pray for boldness unless you're frightened. You don't pray for strength unless you're weak. The reason they were scared was because they were really shaken. Because what had happened right before they began to pray... Listen, they had just been through a traumatic event in which, yes, they had been bold, but at the very end of that traumatic event, the Sanhedrin said, don't you dare preach the name of Jesus anymore in this town. And my guess is that threat, which that threat had been fulfilled on Jesus a couple months earlier with death on a cross, that threat had teeth to it. And while the Sanhedrin couldn't politically maneuver at that moment, they were threatening their life with persecution and so they prayed for boldness. They prayed, but it wasn't just for boldness against, you know, in front of the face of the authorities. They were praying for boldness in all of life. Because even if the, if the authorities weren't threatening their money or their wealth or their freedom or their life, something else might have. There, is, there are so many reasons in this life to feel threatened. You wake up every day, and some of you, some of you live your life under a constant pall of feeling like the world is a threat to you. They said, we, what we want is boldness. And that goes beyond circumstances. To really have power, we want to have an unshakableness. That whether it's persecution, like much of the developing world experiences, much of Christians in the Islamic world and the, the Asian world experience in this time and place, or whether it's a struggle in your life here in America... The goal and the desire is to be unshaken in the face of all that threatens us. Christians, we get shook up too, don't we? And it's not just what Elvis and Billy Joel sing about, which is love is what shakes us. Something, the threats of life shake, shakes us. Death looms before us. We sang about that today, that we have broken bodies. Our bodies are a constant threat to us. It's a threat that they will always give us up. I was at a conference this weekend... Um, it was really something. It was called the Just Gospel Conference. And the highlight of the conference was a woman who spoke named Karen Ellis. Karen Ellis is a Christian activist for the persecuted church around the world. This is a woman who is a top-flight academic, and she's given her life to making known the stories and the accounts and advocating with governments around the world for the persecuted church. And she tells the story the other night about when she had two men that worked along with her and they did the same job that she does, and these two men were going into Iraq, and they were trying to get behind the, the, the veil of ISIS to get word and to get to the church that is within the land that ISIS owns. And they, came, they were driving through a rock, and they came upon a checkpoint, an ISIS checkpoint, that they were not expecting and they did not think was there. And once you're in that checkpoint, you're now surrounded by armed guards at the checkpoint and they began to watch and they were growing nervous as to see what was going on at this checkpoint and they watched in front of them as the line of cars, each one of them, the guards would go up to the car and they would ask for identification and one by one they did this the people would show identification they would then open the doors they would grab the people out of the cars they would take them to the side and they would shoot them in the head car after car after car they can't go anywhere. They can't get out. And they got shook. Two European Christians, one passed out, one wet himself. Yes, Christians, we get shook up. There are things that you face in this life that will shake you. They survived, but they got all shook up. And we had that same experience as well. Maybe not to that, that clear to us. But you've experienced an occasion in your life where you got shook up. The unexpected bill when you had no money that came into the mail and you're going, oh no. The call from the doctor, realizing that your teen hates you, that'll shake you up. Your spouse saying this to you, I'm leaving, that'll shake you. Mom, my girlfriend is pregnant. That'll shake you. There is no heartbeat. That'll shake you. We're going to have to let you go. These are the things that shake us in this life. Life constantly threatens us. And yes, yes, even some of you may experience the threat of persecution for your faith like the early church experience and like, church, like Christians around the world. The gospel advanced, though, what we see in Acts 4 and what we're looking at for these weeks. The gospel advanced, though, because what does the church do in the face of persecution, the face of all of life's threats? They continue to boldly proclaim the gospel, no matter what. See, this looks different in all sorts of occasions. Sure, the persecuted church, it looks clear, Right? For, the, for, the, for Peter and John, hey, don't preach Jesus' name. They go off the next day and they preach Jesus' name. For some of you, it's actually not as clear. Honey, I'm leaving you. Honey, I despise you. What do you do then? You have to preach the gospel to someone, a spouse who you love but who now despises you. And you have to live before them the gospel both in word and in deed. Gospel proclamation that takes boldness. It takes courage to live that way to someone who is actively rejecting you. Actively rejecting you. See, one of the reasons why Christianity swept the Roman Empire is because of this boldness. We looked at that, the type of boldness, that kind of proclamation last week. We looked at how the, the boldness, the proclamation that they, they exhibited, that the type of preaching they had that caused the gospel to advance in the early church, even in the face of persecution, was a, was a proclamation that was spirit-filled, that was exclusive, and it was lived out. It was a lived out gospel. And this, this, this bold proclamation, even in the face of persecution, was one of the reasons why Christianity swept the Roman Empire. Did you know this? Christianity... Christians who were scared, who were frightened, who were all shook up by the threats against them, ended up shaking the world and turning it upside down. How? Because they boldly proclaimed the gospel even in the face of death. One of the early church fathers said this, that the reason why the gospel kept advancing in the face of persecution is that Christians died better than anybody else. They died with greater boldness and greater courage. They died going to the stake and to the lion's den, proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's a simple fact of history. So how do they do that? And how do we take on that kind of courage and that kind of boldness? What is the secret of becoming, when you're all shook up, unshakable in the face of life's threats? give you three answers from this text this morning. Boldness in the face of persecution. Three things that the disciples and the early Christians turn to that we see in Acts 4. To face life's threats with an unshakability. To shake it with courage and boldness and continue to proclaim the gospel. And the first is this. In the face of persecution, boldness in the face of persecution comes from worshiping an unshakable God. It comes from worshiping an unshakable God. They get out of jail, essentially. They get out of the courtroom... And the first thing they do is they go and tell the other Christians what has happened to them. And immediately, what does it say they do? They begin to pray. And the first part of that prayer is they don't jump right into petitions. The first part of that prayer is worship. Pick up in verse 24b, the back part of, of verse 24. It says this, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What do they do? And moving back towards boldness in the face of threats... Their first thing they do is they pray, and in that prayer, they worship the Sovereign Lord. That's how they address God. They didn't come to God, and even though we are commanded to address Him as Father, in this case, they take a different route. They first address Him as Sovereign Lord. It's interesting, the the Greek word here, it's a rare word used in in the Bible. The only other places we see it is the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's this word despotes, which is where we get the word despot. Now, we have a negative connotation for that, but a despot is somebody who has absolute and supreme control and authority over a particular area. And because they're sinful people, they use that supreme control in bad ways. But what is being communicated here is this, and how it's translated as sovereign Lord, is that Jesus, they're looking to God the Father as the one who is sovereign over all things. He is in absolute control of the world's absolute control. Now, very quickly, sovereignty means this. Sovereignty means that God is king. You know, right? You call a king a sovereign. That a king, a monarch, that that is who God is. He is absolutely, everything in his kingdom is under his control. It's under his hand. He does what he desires to do. And so what we see here is the first word they point to, the way they, they, they look to it, the character of God, is that he is sovereign. His unchallengeable power. What, what are they doing? They're confronting the fact that the ruling people in their life, the Sanhedrin, has just uttered warnings and threats and prohibitions to try to silence the church. But their authority, what they lose to, is a higher authority in their prayer. Hey, these people over here have told us to be quiet. But God, the sovereign Lord, we're going to look to you. The one who's in control of this situation. And they expand on the sovereignty of God in two ways in their prayerful worship. They, do, they look to two different things. First in verse 24... What do they look to? They say that God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's what, they, that's what they look to. You're the one who made all this. You made the very people who threatened us. The psalmist looks to this in Psalm 24, right? He claims this. Psalm 20, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it belong to the Lord. So God is sovereign over all creation. But then they go further. They get more specific. They also say this, that God is sovereign over all of history, all of all people, all nations, and all authorities. And where do you see that in their prayer? We well, see it in verse 25 through 28. They pray, a, they pray a prayer, and they quote Psalm 2 in their prayer. They prayed the Bible. In Psalm 2, the whole psalm is about the fact that even though the nations rage and peoples rebel against God, the truth is... The ultimate truth, the divine truth, is that God is in control even though the nations rage against him. Everything, everything is happening according to God's plan. Nothing happens except what God's power and will had decided beforehand would happen. See, the church knew that God was sovereign not just over creation, but over everything and everyone, including the Sanhedrin, and including the kings and rulers of this world, and including the Roman Empire and the Caesar who ruled them. That's what they're looking to. And the profound truth that they point to within that, the greatest illustration of God's predestining power and the fact that He is in control of all things, what do they point to? What's at the end? That even though Pontius Pilate and Herod and all the Jews and all the Gentiles, by the way, who does that cover? That covers everybody. That's all the nations. They're applying Psalm 2. That even in the midst of that, even though they rage against Jesus, the Anointed One, what happens? And they put him to death. It said that God predestined that Jesus would be put to death. And that through that, the world is blessed. That was no accident. You see, God was in control even of the evil men who killed Jesus. And the point is this for us. The point is this and for the church of that day. The church of that day realized that what is antithetical to fear and what gives you courage and boldness in the face of threats is the sovereignty of God is the fact that whatever threatens you in this life is so sovereignly controlled by a good God. He's over all creation. They know that if God created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the, then he has control over the elders and the priests and the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's exactly what they need. They need to know that there's someone who's in control of this. Yes, he is creator. Look at his power. This is the God who created Ex Nihilo. He spoke, and the world came into being. That's the God that they look to. But not only that, but they look to the God who is even in control of the evil deeds of men. The most despicable evil the world has ever known. The worst act of sin that the world has ever committed was to put the perfect son of Jesus to death on a cross. And what they're saying, what they're proclaiming here, and they're worshiping about God to God is that even in the midst of that, God was in control, and he's bringing about uncalculable blessing through it. And so if that's true, that's true, how much more is he in control of this, of the threats that face you? And how much more so can he bring blessing through that? There's a book by a a guy named Joseph Tsong, who was a pastor in Romania during Ceausescu's reign and the persecution, which is one of the worst in the 20th century against Christians In Romania, he was a pastor and he suffered great persecution there. And he wrote a book called Suffering, Martyrdom, and the Rewards of Heaven. It's essentially, basically, a a huge theology of suffering and persecution written on the outflow of his experiences in persecution, what Scripture said about his persecution. But he talks about his persecution. He goes through how he would have interactions with the people who would interrogate him and torture him. And he would say to his interrogators, this is not between me and you, this is between me and God." He said this. What would go through his mind all the time was he would he would talk about how he would think about how God was the one that if God would allow His Son Jesus to die on a cross to bring about His salvation that God must have a plan for His suffering and even His torture in this world. He said this to his interrogators. I know, sir. I don't know what good God is bringing of this, but I do know that only you don't, you don't, the only thing you can do to me is what God is willing and enable, allows you to do to me, and you will not go one inch further. Because you are only an instrument of my God. Someone said, Every day, even as I was facing torture and interrogation, I saw the pompousness, these six men, as nothing more as messengers from my Father. Someone who understands the God's control. In other words, just like the psalm says, When the the nation stand up against you, when all the worst things in life come up against you, when that happens, when that happens, God is still doing great things. You see, have you ever ever seen somebody at a game score a bucket for the other team? They get confused as to which which basket they're shooting on. This is the beauty of what, what God is doing in this world. Here it is, the Sanhedrin threatens the disciples, and the gospel advances. The devil seeks through the through the powers that be in the world seeks to put Jesus to death. And what happens? The greatest salvation the world has ever known happens. You see, the, all the things the devil in this world can throw at us, God says, I can use that and I will use that for your good and my glory. This is the beautiful thing. And here's the, here's the difficulty. In the midst of it, you don't know what God's doing, do you? You don't know what God's doing when you get that phone call. And when your child walks out of the house, and when you have difficulties with your spouse, and when you run out of money, you don't necessarily know what God's doing. And I, let me caution you against this. Please... Be careful to say, this is why God has brought this into my life. God did this so that this would happen. We don't know. We don't know. It could be. We could be. But here's what I would ask you and call you to do. And Within that, that that kind of thinking is this. Could you be curious what God is doing in the midst of your suffering? Could you just go before God and say, God, I don't understand this suffering. I don't know why you're doing this, but I know that you're sovereign, and I know that you're good, and so I am so curious. I cannot wait to see, maybe it may be in this life, maybe it'll be in heaven one day, when you put my life on a projector screen and you say, here's how I blessed you through that suffering. Could you be curious about what God is doing? And Let me drive this home a little bit more as to this aspect of worship. The place where you most need to go when you are threatened by this world, by the frailty of your body, by the frailty of your finances or your relationships or even the frailty of being possibly being persecuted as being someone who doesn't have authority and power in this world is the place that you need to go is worship. That's what the early church did. That's what Christians do, is worship is the means of driving God's truth into your hearts. When all the world, when all the things that are most real to you are saying you're under threat, you go to something that's greater, that's more real. You see, in the, what do they do, the Christians? Do they go to God and they say, God, we're scared. Will you just zap us with some courage? Is that what they do? Just, you know, like, Zzz, and I'm courageous. That's not what they do. What are they doing? They go to the character of God. They strategically take an aspect of who God is and what God has done, and they, they apply it to a specific area of their life in which they feel threatened. So here's the question for you today Where do you feel threatened? Is it a lack of a job and it's financial issues? Is your marriage not the way it's supposed to be? Do you feel threatened at work? What attribute of God do you need to look to? What act of God, what part of the gospel do you need to look to and say, God, I'm going to worship you for that? Because that articulates how you are working all things out for my good and for your glory. They remind God that he is Lord of creation. Do you think God needed to be reminded that he was Lord of creation? For whose benefit do you think that was? For their benefit. For their benefit. So coming in week in and week out to worship on a Sunday, the reason why we sing songs over and over and over again, and we don't just sing one song, we sing multiple songs, and we sing songs that repeat themselves, is because we need to get into our thick skulls, the truth. We need to worship the truth and massage it into us. This is what the psalmist does. In Psalms chapter 16, verse 8, the psalmist says this, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, he lived with the words of God, with an active conscientious of being in the presence of the great God who loved him and ruled over all things. And what was the result of that? The result of that was this. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You want to have courage and boldness in the face, the face of the threats of this world. You go to a sovereign God. You pray to a sovereign God You go to the character and attributes of God You worship Him You worship Him Until you stop shaking like a chihuahua And you can face life with boldness and courage It's the first thing that they did They had boldness in the face of persecution Because they worshipped the Lord The unshakable God The second thing they did though Is they had boldness and courage In the face of persecution And were able to boldly proclaim the gospel It came from petitioning the unshakable God From petitioning Him Pastor, I really appreciate it. from Orlando when I was in school said this. Prayer is the only un- only reasonable response to an unreasonable world. Prayer is the only reasonable response to an unreasonable world because you can't control an unreasonable world. And in the face of a world that you can't control, you pray to the one who's controlling all things. Do you believe in prayer? And is prayer where you go when you're faced with threats? Is that the first thing that comes to mind? Or you can, do you go, i got to process it with somebody? And listen, let me say this. That's what the disciples do. They go and they share what happened, but they process together before God. Could I encourage you this? Spouses, when you come home and you talk about your day, could maybe the response, that and husbands, this is what spiritual leadership means. It doesn't mean we get together and we have like a Bible study every morning together. And then you're checking off the box and holding your wife accountable as to whether she's having devotions and vice versa. No, spiritual leadership is to say, together, as a a husband and wife, as friends, whatever your relationship is with somebody, is you say, this is the challenge of my life, we're going to go to God in prayer together. That the response of us is to petition God. You believe in prayer. There's a funny story from a a number of years ago in West Virginia. West Virginia that's uh, Teresa someplace. Maybe this is your hometown, Teresa. There was a funny account where a city that was going from being a dry county or dry, dry city where there was no alcohol allowed to be sold, and they had changed the laws, and a new tavern was being built. And so many of the Christians in the town were quite upset by this. And so they began to hold They gathered together outside the tavern soon right before it's supposed to be open, and they hold a 24-hour all-night vigil praying for the tavern not to open up. Well, the ne- three days later, a huge storm rolls through the town, and lightning hits the tavern, and it burns down. Well, what do you think happened next? Well, the tavern owner sued the Christians <laughs> and went to court. And the attorney for the Christians said, you cannot blame the Christians for this. This was their case. All they did was pray. And the judge said this. He said, this is the craziest thing. I've never seen anything like this. I have a bar owner who believes in prayer and Christians who do not. (laughs) All right, I gave you a break. It's been heavy. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? The apostles believed in prayer. When they were set free, they they prayed. Their prayer goes like this. First, they pray. They say, God, look upon our threats. They echo the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. God, see us. They echo the cries of the Israelites in bondage in Babylon. Do you see our threats? God, look at our situation. They are threatening us. They're coming against your church. And then what do they pray? Second, they pray for gospel boldness. They say, God, in the midst of these threats, look upon what we're facing. And now as we face this, would you give us boldness to face it? And then the third thing, what do they pray for? They pray for God to reveal himself with great power. God, will you continue to do mighty works, like the way you healed that man who couldn't walk? Will you continue to do that so the gospel would be advanced? What I want you to see here is that they petition an unshakable God. But I also want you to see that their priority in life was an unshakable kingdom. Do you see, do you notice what they pray for there? They do not pray for God to take the threats away. They don't pray for the persecution to go bye-bye. They don't pray for their freedom. They don't pray to protect their lives. They don't say, God, would you zap these people? Instead, what do they do? They say, "May we have boldness that in the face of persecution, we might proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they pray for. They don't pray for it to stop. They pray for the gospel to continue to advance. And you see what they want here. What they want more than anything else in their petition... Is they want the world to know about the unshakable God. And they want God's kingdom to come. They are far less interested in being shielded from persecution than they are with seeing the gospel advance. Lord, make us bold. Make us bold. That's what they pray for. Some of you need to be, wake up every day and pray for that. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. When he's in prison, uh, and, and the, he writes to the Ephesians, and near the end of that book, he asks them to pray for him. And what does he ask them to pray? That he get out of jail? No, he says this, that I may open my mouth to speak boldly about Jesus Christ as I ought to speak. I might preach the gospel boldly. This, these are kingdom prayers. When, you, when you're longing, the greatest petition of your heart is that God's kingdom would be advanced. That's when, that's when you face up. That's when you can face the threats. You say, Lynn, these threats, these threats can't stop me. Because I'm proclaiming a gospel that cannot be stopped. And I am pointing people to a kingdom that is coming and there is nothing the world can do about it. That gives you boldness. When you, when you proclaim a kingdom that no one can stand, stand up again. And you know, this is how we're called to pray. Before we pray, asking for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray first? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the start of the prayer which means all prayer for daily bread is subservient to our desire and our longing to petition for God's kingdom to come, no matter what may come to us. If it means my death for your kingdom to come, and that means you say no to my daily bread, so be it. So be it. And that's what they pray. John Wesley once wrote, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, laymen or you, and they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we seek to be a part of a, an advancement of the gospel and the, the making of the kingdom come in this world that we do so by petitioning to God to make us bold. Third and last point. Boldness in the face of persecution comes Comes from getting shaken by an unshakable God. So the Christians are saying, okay, God, help us preach the word. We're under threat. Help us do all the things we're supposed to do. And that's probably what you're thinking, right? I don't know how I'm supposed to go back into that relationship and proclaim the gospel with boldness and with word and deed. You think about what those Christians would face in Iraq and Syria in these days and in much part of the the third world and the developing world in places like Sudan and northern Africa. And you say, there's no way I could do that. You'd be led to ask this and say, God, help me be bold because I can't do this of my own strength. And how does God answer? God answers. He answers. How does He answer? Here's the answer, verse 31. Look in your Bibles. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now what is the shaking? They got all shook up. God shook them. Now that's an important thing. This is not, this is not just a, a special effect by God. This is not Steven Spielberg's special effects. That's not what's happening here. It's not just a lightning bolt or a thunderclap. That would be a nice effect. That would be nice. It's like, hey, I heard you. But that's not only what's happening here. There's something more significant because in, in, in redemptive history, in the story of the Bible, shaking, the shaking of the ground and earthquakes have a prominent place and it always, always signifies that God is presence. We looked at these kind of things before. These kind of theophanies of God this, that represent God's presence. There's fire, there's clouds, but there's also shaking. You see, when, when, when Moses came down on Mount Sinai, when God, God came down and gave him the law and met Moses there, the whole people were starting to say, hold back, why? Because the mountain was shaking with the glory of God. A mountain was shaking. You ever seen a mountain? They're big. And it shook. It shook. In fact, it was falling apart. Imagine kind of apocalyptic kind of, kind of imagery here of all the boulders falling off the mountain because God's presence was coming down. In Isaiah 6, this is the same things happens. When the presence of God comes down to the temple to meet with Isaiah and to speak and call Isaiah to ministry, we're told that the very threshold of the temple shook. And then in a, in a poetic language, Deborah in Judges 5, she sings a famous song about how they went, the people of Israel went out to battle, and she says this, O oh Lord, when you marched out, the earth shook sound of a mighty army going forth. Now what's going on in the shaking, with these shaking incidents? These images reflect the fact that God's presence is coming down. The image of the earthquake is this. And what's going on there is saying there is something greater than this world that has entered into our presence. Here's the illustration. Almost every one of you, if you were to walk across a thin light, uh, ice, a, a lake that had a thin piece of ice over it, Kind of like if, if something in here in Georgia were actually to freeze over. You don't want to be walking on any of the lakes that are frozen in Georgia. Ain't, this ain't the tundra. You walk on that, what's going to happen? That's exactly right. And you're going to get really cold. Why? Because you are greater, stronger, more, something denser, more powerful, more weighty than the ice was standing upon it. And when God's glory comes down and His glory is made present with us, people shake The earth begins to break apart. That's what happens. God says to Moses, when he comes down on Sinai, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, "Ah, I don't think so. Because if you see my glory, guess what's going to happen? You're going to shake so much, you're just going to fall apart. You're going to have limbs just popping off everywhere. Like a Mr. Potato Head. This is what's going to happen to you. Because I am so great and so glorious and more weighty. You cannot handle my substance. And yet, what do we see here? Here in verse 31, God comes down in power and shakes the room with his presence. Why is it? Are they, why are they able to experience the shaking of God and the presence of God and the power that that gives them? And by the way, it gives them power, right? Because what's the response? When they get all shook up by the presence of God in their midst, what happens? It's two things happen. One, it says at the end, they go out and with boldness continue to pro- proclaim the, the goodness of God. And the second thing they do, what do they do next? What we're going to look at in a couple of weeks is they give all their money away. Now, I don't know about you, because this is how some of us are thinking. Some of you are really concerned about the fact that America's religious freedoms are being taken away. And I don't know if you're like me. As someone who has kids and a household, I, I, maybe it's just, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm never, I don't think I'm ever going to be one of those people who has like a shed with like 9,000 rounds of AK ammo and in like a bunker with food. But have you ever... Like, you're like, okay, if things go really bad, what do you think about doing? I'm going to get some land. I'm going to gather all my people around me. We're going to create a bunker. We're running to the hills, and we're going to have our own food. What are you doing? You're, you draw everything to yourself. What does the church do? They give it all away. That's the response. So they're bold, but what gives them that boldness is the presence of God. But how is it that the presence of God is able to come in their midst and not destroy them? Because a couple months earlier, There was not one, but there was two earthquakes. Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, it says this, verses 45 and 46, and then verses 15 and 51. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. What happened there? The justice of God, the presence of God, the substance of God, the power of God came down in judgment, and the world could not handle it. The earth shook. What was going on there is God's justice. The thing that actually makes us shake in his presence is the fact that we're these weak, sinful beings, and when his glory comes down into our presence, we shake to death. And yet Jesus, what's going on here, is that judgment that was supposed to come on you and me, that comes down on Jesus. Jesus was shaken to death by the Father's wrath so that you and I could get God's presence. But that wasn't the only shaking. It was a second shaking in Matthew 28. On Easter Sunday, there was another earthquake, and what happened? A stone rolled away, and Jesus walked out. The presence of God in power, what's going on there? It's not, just, it's not wrath being coming down that time. Now, something else is breaking, not just Sinai, not just the temple curtain. What's breaking at the resurrection? Death itself. C.S. Lewis says this, It was called the deep magic. The deep, dark magic of death was broken. The disintegrator death was being disintegrated. In other words, what you have when Jesus died and rose from the dead, you have the death of death and the death of Christ. Did you get that? Death is no longer, because not only did he die and there was an earthquake, but then he shook the world by defeating death, and death no longer has any power over you. And this is what they turned to. And this is what the shaking is pointing back to. And this is why God's presence can come down on power upon them. Because you, you have the shaking, the shaking of Christ on our behalf. So that when we, when God comes to power and power upon us, we are not shaken to death, but we are filled with the same power of Jesus. You see what happens? Not only are they shaken, but what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Jesus, the one who defeated death the one who proclaimed the gospel with with the threat of death in front of him, the one who was abandoned by the Father, who experienced all of God's weight upon himself, now resides in you. That's why now you can move forward with power. In fact, this is how Christians grow and how we can be unshakable. It was known since the early church. John Chrysostom, who was known as the first great order and speaker of the early church, he was a Greek preacher, said this about this text. He said that the more the place was shaken the less Christians were shaken. In other words, the more in your life that you are shaken by the beauty and the glory and the power of God's presence, the less all the threats of this world will shake you. The less you'll be threatened by them. That's what's going on here. So you have the glory of God's presence. Jesus says the gospel, I was shaken to pieces so that you could become unshakable. I was shaken to pieces to get what you deserve, to know that you are loved and you are accepted and that death cannot defeat you. They may threaten your body, but that's become nothing. Become nothing but a taunt. This is how Christians have lived. Close with this. There was an Iranian student who was on Iranian television. A young man who said this to the uh, guy who was interviewing him. He said, I know exactly what I'm doing what a young Iranian student said in a live broadcast on national Iranian television and the on-air host advised him to be cautious with his decision and to which the young man responded would you keep me from the truth about life in Christ the state can kill me for this but I have nothing to lose I can only win as a Christian who understands that they can be bold they can be bold because they know that even death is nothing for them but victory. Nothing but victory. Boldness for Jesus, come what may. That is boldness. And guess what? The whole theme that we're going with these three weeks, that's what shakes the world. Because the gospel continues to advance when God's people stand up and say, my marriage is broken. It is all shaken, but I'm going to go back in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I may be threatened by these people, but I'm going back in and I'm going to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Time and time again, and God's kingdom comes. Let's pray.